Good morning. It's uh, an honor and a pleasure to preach for you today. Pleasure because I love to preach and honor because I'm standing before an audience of my peers. But many of you have been Christians longer than me. I think of Sherwin McIntosh. Happy birthday again. Many of you are older than I am and many are more experienced in life. But what I do have, I would like to share this day. And before we get into the message itself, you can see the title, Torn Between Two Lovers. If you're from a certain generation, you know the next line, right? <laughs> Feeling like a, a fool. See, I thought we could just, we could just call it, okay, uh, you're going to have to manually advance it because it's not working. Sorry. Okay, there we go. That was the original name. And then I thought of that, <laughs> because I wanted you to remember it. But before we can get into the message, uh, I'm supposed to give greetings to you from a lot of different places. From Nigeria, Ethiopia, from Kenya, Rwanda, Lesotho, South Africa, and Ghana. Because I promised those guys, I was with them a couple weeks ago, I would give them your love. And I'll share more in depth in a moment. But I also want to thank so many of you for your support uh, during these last three years as my mother lost her life to Alzheimer's and uh, the memorial service was in Jacksonville, my hometown, just a few days ago. Really appreciate uh, the gift, the flowers that came from here. You can see a number of our family members gathered there. But you guys have been incredibly supportive and really appreciate that a ton. And those flowers that North River sent were just terrific. So I've been, uh, I've been on the road a lot. I came back from Africa early when hospice said that they, they gave her one week. In fact, she took the full week, but I'm really glad I came back. The trip began in Nigeria. We have some Nigerians in the audience. I know we do, because there are hundreds of millions of, uh, of them, and they're all over the world. But if you don't know the geography, it's right there. And of course, I try to blend in wearing my African clothes when I go to Africa. <laughs> And I spoke on understanding Revelation. You know, how do you understand the book of Revelation? That's a, a subject of interest pretty much anywhere in the world. And it's, it's always a joy to be back there. From there, I headed over. This is one of the Ethiopian flags. The regular one doesn't have the lion, but I think this is cooler. The next place was Ethiopia. For family reasons, I had to cancel a trip booked to Ethiopia a few years ago, but I promised them I, I would come back. There, as you can see, it's in East Africa. And that flight, by the way, from Nigeria to Ethiopia, that's a long way. It's a lot farther than here to Los Angeles, a lot farther. Africa's a huge continent. You can see here the East African countries. You can see Somalia. You can see Eritrea. Those are kind of the, the dangerous countries, and, and Yemen and Sudan. I guess there are four very dangerous countries, five counting Burundi. But there are some safe ones as well. And we have uh, brothers and sisters in all these places, all the, the countries, dangerous or not. I had a wonderful time in Ethiopia. And one thing that was cool, see, last year I was in Tanzania, and I got to see, you know, the ancient human remains, uh, Zinjanthropus and all these uh, Australopithecines, well, they've got even better stuff in Ethiopia. They take care of it very well. And this was a chance to see Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis. Yes? Okay, um, an announcement, Mr. and Mrs. Childs need to go to your van. Whatever it is, um, take care of that. Okay, so anyway, 
Kuo Bones, that's where the Pope lives in Ethiopia. The leader of their Ethiopic Orthodox Church is called the Pope, just like, just like in Egypt. They have their own Pope. Uh, we had a teaching day, and this was a tremendous pleasure because the audience was mainly guests, workmates, some family members, uh, just people from all over. They had worked very hard for this, and that inspired me to really work hard too. After Ethiopia, I headed to Kenya, which is right there, just to burn it in your, in your brain. I'll tell you one really cool thing about Kenya. I got a message this morning when I woke up. They had already, of course, they'd already had their, their service. Their service is around 9.30 in the morning. But if you remember the brother uh, who escaped execution a couple months ago, Faisal, it, it was a dangerous thing, and a lot of people's lives were put at risk. Anyway, he's, he escaped Somalia, but t this morning in Kenya, he shared his whole story publicly. And he got to share and inspire this, the disciples in Nairobi. Incredible thing. I was actually in Nairobi three times on this trip, but the teaching part included one thing I've never done before. They wanted a chance for all the Christians 10 years and older. And in Nairobi, there are quite a few who are in the 10 to 20 pocket. Uh, just a class to speak on them, because I think the needs are different well, when you get older, just as in life. Here's my friend who was baptized in our campus ministry back in London days, about 30 years ago, and his wife. Always look forward to seeing friends around the world. From there, it was on to Rwanda. As you can see, just below the equator, and many of you are familiar with Rwanda because of the genocide that happened 22 years ago, where up to a million people were killed, uh, mainly uh, Hutus killing Tutsis. It was incredibly intense. In fact, my driver in uh, Chigali, the capital of Rwanda, my driver was from Burundi, uh, from, from our church in, in Bujumbura. And I, I asked her to tell me the story. And her husband is not a supporter of the government. So they had to flee to Rwanda, or he would be killed. And if you've been following the, the news, over 3,000 people have been killed just this year for voicing any kind of dissent in Burundi. In fact, a lot of the rhetoric that's on the airwaves is, is uh, Tutsi Hutu rhetoric, and many people are afraid that Burundi could slide right into a civil war. And we, we pray that doesn't happen, not just for our brothers and sisters in Bujumbura, but for the whole country. It's a very unstable part of the world if you think about it. You've got Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, uh, Tanzania is, is pretty stable, but there's so many countries in East Africa. We should really be praying for, for, for peace, uh, for the spread of the gospel. You older guys may have seen a film with Don Cheadle. It was called Hotel Rwanda. True story. Hotel manager, when the genocide is breaking out, when the government is encouraging the Hutus to murder the Tutsi cockroaches, he houses uh, about 1,300 or 1,400 Tutsis in the hotel. It's a big hotel. And in exchange, he, I guess he, he gave them what they wanted, but he was able to save so many lives, very moving. Uh, when I got to my hotel in Rwanda, in, in Jigali, I looked at the name of it. Sometimes I don't really pay attention to the details until I'm right there. And it was the Thousand Hills Hotel, Mikolin, the very hotel where all of those uh, Tutsis were saved. And so I feel like I'm, you know, I'm part of history. 
in Rwanda, we're in three groups, one in the capital of Chigali, and two in outside groups, very poor areas, where normally people live on less than $1 a day. The preacher is Johnson. He's from the north, he's from Uganda, trained in Kenya, came to Rwanda. And we had some great fellowship, not just visiting the genocide memorial, and there are genocide memorials, sadly, all over the world. Um, you know, Armenia, Bosnia, Cambodia, they're just everywhere because humans are evil. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, people who reject the Bible with a rosy view of life, they say that humans are sweet and good. Our problem is, you know, we, we feel guilty. Our problem is we don't realize that we are divine. But they say, but society is evil. Humans are good, but society is evil. I don't think that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, is the whole somehow uh, so much greater than the sum of the parts or less? You can figure that out. But Wanda was a, a wonderful experience. Down in Lesotho, which is way at the bottom of Africa, but it's actually enclosed um, by South Africa. Kind of like, uh, you know, amoeba, uh, swallowing up an organism. The whole country's inside the borders of South Africa. Go northeast, southwest, uh, walk long enough, and you end up in South Africa. Lesotho, and because... Um, this was the spring in the southern hemisphere. The snow had already melted, but I wish I'd been there for the snow. Uh, here we have uh, the preachers. Well, this is the primary preacher. His name is also uh, Johnson, which makes it kind of interesting, and then another brother named, named Paul. Uh, I taught a lesson on humility. Uh, well, actually, it was more of a lesson for me because I came out of the building. It was burned out, and the brother said, be careful with your step. And there was a brother standing right there, and I'm, it was, I guess, probably about this height. He said, be careful. I said, okay, I got it. And I reached down, and I thought, okay, just go slowly. But there was nothing there. It was like a two or two and a half foot drop. So I did what I normally do in those circumstances. I pretend I fell on purpose. No, I <laughs> actually I just relax and become a rag doll. I got this incredible wound on my leg. It looked like it was broken, but it didn't feel that bad. But that was a good lesson in humility. He who thinks he's standing firm, watch out lest he fall. <laughs> Proverbs 16, 18, pride goeth before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So that was my lesson. And then South Africa. And because of the change in schedule, uh, coming back from my mother, um, in Ottawa, I actually had more time in South Africa. I had an extra day. And so I was able not only to, uh, to, be, uh, to do the basic things that I'd planned. Uh, sadly, I had to cancel the, the days in Zambia and in Ghana. But I got to speak a number of times to the students, to parents. We had an evening class. It was kind of a philosophy class. This is what is being taught. This is the dominant worldview in the media, in the arts, in the universities, in more and more schools, even not universities. And we need to be aware of it. And that went great too. We had a teaching afternoon and also I had a chance to preach on Sunday. There's so much more I could share. If you've been getting my weekly newsletters, you've got it already. If not, please sign up. 
And as Sherwin mentioned, next week we'll be in Jerusalem. We have, uh, I guess we have the Hedricks, who are no longer technically North River members, and about 10 others of us in the audience today who will be in Jerusalem. And don't worry, we remembered the communion supplies. Just like the Bible says, we brought those tiny little cups and those little wafers, okay? Because we are a New Testament church. Okay, we have people, it's okay, it's okay. We have people on this, on this trip from all of these countries, 21 countries, so an amazingly international event. And this brings us now to the sermon itself. Thank you, North River, for making it possible for me to go to Africa. I know Mark Ottenweller feels exactly the same thing, that we represent you, but we're also incredibly grateful for everything that you do. Here is our text, James chapter 4. As Jeff mentioned, we're in a sermon series right now. As we go through James, in, in every chapter, in nearly every passage, we read about two ways, two roads. Uh, like, like last week, we had the wisdom from above, the wisdom from below. Godly wisdom and basically diabolical wisdom, which is not wisdom at all. Just as in the Proverbs, as in Matthew 7, you know, the narrow road, the broad road. This is very much in the background of this passage. Let's read. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God, a state of being his enemy. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Let's just pray about this. Dear Lord, in the remaining minutes this morning, we pray that you'll show us things in your word that we need to apply to our lives. Help us not to assume that we're necessarily on the narrow road or our wisdom is godly because we know there's another path. And as a Christian, we, we work so hard to try to stay on that narrow road. Open our eyes. Speak to us in Christ. Amen. Well, the basic theme, as you can see from what we've read, is godliness or worldliness. You know, if we're a friend of the world, it's not to say we shouldn't be a friend of sinners. Jesus befriended tax collectors, prostitutes. It's not to say we don't be relatable. It's not to say we're antisocial. But that's not what the world means. Here, the world is something evil. 
it's a, it's a system that's opposed to God. It's a system marked by selfishness, by insistence on doing things our way. The flesh, not the spirit. Rejecting all the signals coming to us from, uh, from collective wisdom, from history, from our consciences, from those who know God, rejecting that and thinking that we know better. That's the worldliness that we must reject. The background of this passage, apart from James itself, is Matthew 5 to 7. The Sermon on the Mount is the background to the book of James. And probably because James is Jesus' brother, and he would have known it. Or if he had missed the service that day, Jesus would have, you know, told him later on. And another thing in the background, it's not part of your Bible, but it's a Jewish writing called Sirach. The wisdom of uh, Jesus, son of Sirach, or Ecclesiasticus. And if you read that, that'll also give you some cool things. And last, as far as background, look at the prophet Amos. When I preached on Amos a few, a couple months ago, I said that Amos is the James of the Old Testament. Well, now we're in James, and I'll say that James is the Amos of the New Testament. They spare no words, they mince no words, the very uh, straight shooting. Similar thoughts in Amos, and this idea of adultery, which we'll come back to. If we're friends of the world, that's adultery towards God. You'll find that in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other prophets, but especially in the first of the minor prophets, Hosea. It's a huge theme. Before we can be sure of the application, it's probably wise to consider when he says that, you know, you want something, you don't get it, and so you kill, what does he mean? Does this mean that they were actually literally killing each other? Now, I don't really want to believe that my brothers and sisters in Christ wanted something, and so they took it, and then someone resisted, and then they killed them in the parking lot. I don't want to believe that. It's, it would be, temp I find it tempting to spiritualize the passage. You know, especially because in James, in uh, Matthew 5, which is very much the background of James, in Matthew 5, if you hate your brother, it's like killing him. If you look lustfully at someone, it's like you're having sex with that person. But I'm not so sure that we should spiritualize away this passage. When James was written, social situation it was very intense. Extremely intense. I, I explained that in the opening chapter in the book on, on James. And I think it's quite possible there were members who were killing or who wanted to or who were persuaded by the political rhetoric on the radio of the day, so to speak. And so James is saying, don't do that. Don't go there. I think he's actually warning them against literal killing. You can read this at home and you may have a different view. And if you do and you've substantiated, I would love to hear your thoughts because I'm not 100% certain on that. I am, however, 100% certain about verse 4, that worldliness is adultery. Worldliness is adultery. Are you a worldly person? Now, once again, this can be a little confusing, because worldly has different senses. Someone who travels a lot is worldly. You know about the world. You're informed. You keep up with the news. That's not, that's not a bad thing. But there's the other sense of worldly, that is, your mind is not set on heavenly things. It's more in the gutter. It's more down here. It's more, you're, you're more fascinated with your own empire. I think there's a new TV series called Empire. You know, it's your empire, your power, your legacy. You're the king on the throne. You don't want to share it with anybody. You certainly don't want God sitting on the throne. And you're not about to bow to Jesus. 
In that sense, worldliness is wrong. And it's adultery if you're a brother or a sister because you've already pledged your heart and your life to God. And so you can't give it to another any more than you marry one woman, but you decide to take your secretary to bed next week. It's wrong. It's always wrong. There are no exceptions. You adulterous people, don't you know, friendship with the world means enmity against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. It's so important that we get what this means, worldliness. I want to flesh it out a little bit. Part of worldliness is a love of comfort. We don't want to sacrifice. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want to be placed on hold or stand in a line. We don't want to have to pay for something. We want immediate delivery. We want to be the center of, of the attention. We don't want to have to sub, subordinate our thoughts. We don't want to have to be patient and let someone else share the limelight. It's wanting to be first. Me, me, me. Diotrophies of third John. Diotrophies. That love of comfort. I got this, it was part of a message from an African brother, and he, he just mentions it in passing. He's not writing to me about his woes. You know, when you write to people in Africa, like most of the world, you don't just get straight to the business. You say, how are you? How's your family? How's your wife? How are your children? How's your mother? How's your father? And, and how are you? And he said, well, I was down with malaria, typhoid, and running stomach, but I'm, I'm much better today. He was actually still sick as a dog when he wrote that to me, but not complaining. What would we do? We, we would push 911, you know? We'd want everyone to know. For people who live in many parts of the world, particularly where uh, health standards, hygiene are, are, are lower than what we might be used to in this amazing country, uh, this is normal living. We love comfort. What does that have to do with the audience today? Look at your city and padded pews. What is this? You guys are so worldly. We should rip the padding right off. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> do like they do in Ethiopia. You know, in Ethiopia, they stand during church for all six hours. You can fit more people in the building that way. No, this is, I don't think it's evil to be, have padding. In fact, I like it a lot. And so if nature has not provided you with your own pad, so to speak, it's good to have a different pad underneath you. <laughs> Another part of worldliness is love of wealth, affluence, with that, of course, prestige, status, the respect that comes to someone who has made a success of herself, someone who's done quite well. Love of money. And here we are in Cobb County, where money, I know that a lot of people have drug problems in Cobb County, but money itself can be a drug. You're, you're kind of swimming in the dollars, and you can become totally unaware of what's important. You know that you're going to die one day and take nothing with you. We all know that. No one on his deathbed says, wow, I wish I'd spent more days at the office. Wish I'd, you know, made more money. It's always about relationship. I wish, I wish I had more time with my children. I wish I told my wife I loved her. We understand that intellectually, 
but you come out, go out of church today and you'll be right back in the world and all these messages that you're really nobody unless you have the latest, the best shoes, the latest fashion, drive the best car. I've been waiting for almost 10 years to share this email and now I will share it with you. I get attacked all the time. Well, let's say solicited. Uh, this is, uh, let me just read it to you. Good day, beneficiary. Note that your compensated sum of 800,000, no, 800,000 yeah, US dollars has been converted into an ATM card by United Nations. Contact Ben for your ATM card. Regards, Bove. It, it was such a wacky offer. I can't believe anyone being sucked into this. The United Nations is involved in an ATM card with almost a million dollars. Of course, you can only take out 100 a day or 500 a day. So you have to stand at the machine for 27 years to get all the money. <laughs> and, and I contact Ben. He gave me his address, but I didn't want to put that up there because I'm afraid some of you might want to do it just out of curiosity. <laughs> But this was years ago. I mean, that ship already left harbor. I, I, if it was valid, I, I missed it. But why do we receive solicitations like this? Here's my theory. I thought about this. Uh, scams work in part because we humans can be very greedy. We want to believe it's true. Like we want to believe we're going to win the jackpot and the lottery. And many people in Africa, that's actually where that email came from. I won't name the country. I, I won't mention it, even though its flag is green, white, green. <laughs> but there they know how materialistic people are in the West. So they target people in Germany. France, Italy, Britain, they target Americans, Canadians, because they know how materialistic we are. If you, like me, have ever fantasized about finding an attache case full of $100 bills and wondering what would I do with it if I found it, because I don't want someone to come back and execute me, if you ever fantasized about that, then I think you, you kind of get it already. The love of money is very seductive. It's very powerful. Jesus talks about money a lot in the Gospel of Luke. He says, what's highly valued in the eyes of man is detestable in the sight of God. Money is a necessary evil. What do we worry about? Not being able to pay our bills. What do we worry about? What do we dream about? Do we run around panicking? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, don't panic. The Lord wants to give you something to eat, something to drink, and something to wear. But that love of affluence, living not just at a reasonable level, but so far beyond it, it's stunning. And then amassing these huge fortunes to leave to our children so that they, they won't have to depend on God either. They can just depend on the almighty dollar. Love of affluence. There's love of security. We're afraid. We're afraid that not just we'll be poor, we're afraid we'll be attacked, we're afraid we'll be robbed. 
Normally when I go out in any country, I don't have any money with me. And if I do, if I have a bank note, I just stick it in my pocket. Someone robs me, he's not going to get very much. I would feel quite differently going out in town with $1,000 stuffed in my jeans. We need to be free from the danger of money, but also from the anxiety, anxiety that, that that perpetrates. Let me say something about Rwanda. You may know that the, the president is a very organized man, very driven. He's been there for quite a while. But there, there are many victories of his presidency. And one is that Rwanda is known for having pretty good health care. However, to get access to health care, you must have medical insurance. And if you don't have insurance, then there's no guarantee you'll be treated anywhere. You can go to the clinic, but sorry. You need to have that card from the government. One of the Christians here at North River, before I went to Africa, gave me $100 and said, I trust your judgment. Use this somewhere that'll make a difference. And I said, I will. And I think I know where. I, I think I'm going to make a difference in Rwanda, and I'll tell you what happens. And he, and he said, that's great. I was stunned because I got with Johnson, not Johnson 2 from Lesotho, Johnson 1 from Chigali. And I said, Johnson, and this was the day I first got there, I've got some money. We want this to make a difference. Will you think about that and let me know? I got there on Thursday. On Saturday, he said, I think we know now. Here's the situation. We have a lot of members in the church who have no medical insurance. And a lot do, but, and we're really trying to, to help, but a lot of them, they don't. They just can't afford it. In the capital city, nearly everyone's covered. But in the provincial church, the ones that are like an hour away, where people live very, very frugally, uh, there are many uninsured. And I said, well, what does it cost to insure someone for a year? I, I know what it costs us if we stick with our plan to insure our family for a year. And it's stunning. Just stunning. The rest of the world can't get it. So I said, Johnson, what does it cost? He said, $4. <laughs> and they can't afford it? He said, well, we've got some families that have children. They, they live on less than a dollar a day. Well, I got an email yesterday. Johnson said, it's all done. Everyone's insured now. And, and one of those families was a family of seven. Father, mother, five children. Now you'd say seven times four, that's not even $30. It's not even $30, but when you're living on less than a dollar a day, you're living hand to mouth, $30 is a lot of money, and there's no way they could have paid that. But every member of the family must be insured or none of them are. That's the way it works. See, we, we take things for granted. Most of the world does not have the privilege and luxury that we do. And money is a narcotic. We swim in this affluent society. We bring into our heads and hearts the messages the media sends us, buy, buy, buy. And we completely forget the, what the world is like, really. Love of comfort, affluence, security, and I could just add love of fashion. With many people, we just like to have some clothes. How can we? Yeah, I earned the money, yeah. But 
Doesn't God care how we spend our money? What do you think about that? See, if, if we don't get the point here, we can end up being torn between two lovers. Actually, no. If we don't get the point, we don't feel torn at all. Because we just go towards money and we just say, that's what God wants me to do. Like the health and wealth guys. Like P Pastor Dollar and other frauds who teach that you'll become rich if you follow him. Utter fraud. Don't believe it for a minute. Don't believe it for a minute. You're torn when you realize that that's evil. That Jesus has some very clear teaching about what we do with our money and how we handle ourselves economically. And you feel like, I really want what the world offers. That's where you're torn. And we're torn between two. It's not a comfortable place. Imagine a brother. This is, okay, this is not from an email. <laughs> okay, I made this up. Imagine a brother says, well, my marriage is fine even though I cuddle with my ex-girlfriend nearly every day, an ex-girlfriend meaning a different person, not his wife. Sometimes I introduce Vicky. I say, this is my ex-girlfriend, and people, huh? Well, she used to be my girlfriend, now she's my wife. You know, I don't mean that. <laughs> Some of you, you, the way you think, it's a little convoluted. I wanted to head it off at the pass. <laughs> my marriage is fine, but I like to cuddle with my girlfriend, but thank goodness my wife is very forgiving. I think this is pretty similar to the way that the spiritual adultery works. We're intoxicated by wealth and money. We believe the messages of the world about money and fashion and what's really important. And we forget about what God says. And we don't even read the prophets because we know it's going to disturb us. But we say, but it's okay because I'm forgiven through Jesus Christ. But I don't think that's actually true. Forgiveness is conditional. You have to be faithful to your husband, the Lord. You got to be faithful. If you're an adulterer, he'll divorce you. And there are lots of verses in the Bible about that very fact. Worldliness is adultery, double-minded. You know, that's the idea of being torn between two lovers. And then he ends up saying we need to draw near, change our attitude, and be urgent. Let's look at this in a different translation, the end there. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then in the last part, the, the, the last section of our, our text, he gives them a series of imperatives. And I think... He's probably saying this, the same thing in six different ways, but let's look at those. First, he says, submit yourselves to God. What does that mean? Submitting ourselves to God. Well, as it says right after that, resist the devil. Too often, we resist God and we submit to the devil. Just whatever he says. Oh, is that the cool shoe? Okay, then I need to... Daddy, can I have $200 to buy the cool shoes? Otherwise, I'll be the only one without cool shoes. Okay. We, we rationalize it and we indulge each other. Submit to God because he's stronger than we are. It's actually not very smart to resist God. But it's very smart to resist the devil. But particularly those messages that come to us 
about prestige, status purchases, investments that are guaranteed to make us rich. We need to firstly have our baloney detector on, and second, we need to understand the inherent danger of wealth. Wealth is dangerous. It's dangerous. That's a biblical thing. That's not me making something up. Resist God. No. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Well, but, but how can I resist? Well, one thing you could do is stop watching TV. Because those commercials are designed to get you to buy things. You could stop watching movies. Because most of them are indecent. Not all. But if you want to talk about violence and sex, just, yeah, just get cable TV or, or watch movies. But when you stop doing that, and it's amazing when I talk to brothers who stop doing that, all their problems with impurity, gone. You know, you think that, okay, I, I struggle with this, and, but I'm still going to stimulate myself. I'm going to let these messages come into my home, into my head every day, and you're going to live a pure and holy life? You think you're Superman? Getting all those signals and you're, you know, it's like someone who's, it's like, let's say your weakness is shopping. Online, you're on the internet all the time, you're going to be bombarded with messages. It could be gambling. It could be uh, something uh, sexual. It could be some video world that's very violent. You let those things come into your head. I tell you, you are not resisting the evil one. You're resisting God. God expects us to be smarter. Draw near to him. He'll draw near to us. Devotional time. Hard to draw near to God when, when inside my head everything is chaotic. We need to be cleansed. Not just confess and ask forgiveness, but be transformed by the resurrection of Christ. See, without some deliberate times of reflection where we sit down with the Bible and with a few minutes to spare uh, or hours and, and take time and reflect on life, reflect on what the scripture says. Without that, we won't be able to, we won't be able to draw near God. And worse, we, we won't even feel like drawing near God because the world says you're doing fine as you are. We should weep and then be humble Weeping is not just an intellectual agreement with God. This is a heart level reflection and change. You may be convicted today. You need to change the way you spend money, the way you help the poor. It may even be your Sunday contribution. Maybe you're one of the, the ones who could give a lot more, but you're just chintzy. Whatever it is, submit this area of life to God. Be grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Be grieved over the situation uh, in our world, in our town. How about that? It's intellectual, but it's emotional also. To be humble, to tremble at his word. This series that we're giving on the tough hitting letter of James will actually end next week. Next week there'll be some strong words for the entrepreneurs and the rich people. Um, so you may find it to be a little bit like today, but probably we need to hear that twice anyway. But next week is the final message in the James part, and then we switch over to Jesus, the third one in that series. So, wrapping it up, love of the world is adultery. You can find that explicitly stated in 25 or 30 different books of the Bible. You love the world, you say, oh, I don't really think about heaven very much. It's right, because you love this world so much. You're charmed by the world's delights. But love of the world is adultery. Second, worldliness doesn't mean that we're automatically lost. 
But if we love the world, we're playing with our salvation. You're chancing it. You're jeopardizing it. You're, you're bordering on apostasy. That is wholesale defection from and rebellion against God. And I think that's what happens to a number of brothers and sisters. They become Christians and they drift off. No one has ever helped them. Look at their finances. Look at their values. Look at their wardrobe. Look how they dress. No one's ever done a study on modesty. No one's, no one's really helped them. When the scriptures will give us all the help we need. It's dangerous. It doesn't mean you're lost. But if you, don't, if you ignore messages like this, you will be lost one day. It's just a matter of time. And that means that dealing with worldliness is absolutely a matter of urgency. Six responses. Well, yeah, the responses we talked about. Uh, weeping and so forth. Let's pray as we close out the message now. Dear Lord, you, you know we don't want to be torn between you and anyone else. We, we take pride in, in being faithful to you. For many of us, we've, we've taken pride in, in trying to follow your way for decades now. Yet the society we're in is worldly and, and the spirit of worldliness has crept into our churches just about everywhere globally. Please protect us. Help us to choose you, not the world. Help us, Lord, to submit and resist and draw near and be cleansed and to weep and to humble ourselves. For we know this will please you. Through the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.